there may be a connection problem. I don't think Jesus had this problem in his time. You know that today is um, Jesus is King Sunday, and this is also the last Sunday <clears throat> before the season of Advent. Let, let me let me start without the slides. Okay, we'll, we'll let it <clears throat> uh, reboot or, or find the source. <clears throat> a long time ago, when I was a student in the university, um, I remember quite clearly a talk that I attended. It's not a, um, a huge gathering of believers. It is more like a, a faculty kind of a Christian meeting. Uh, the, the large ones would have two, three hundred students attending in a lecture theater. This is a much smaller one in a smaller room. And I, rem <clears throat> Excuse me. And I remember the, the speaker were having a dialogue with us and asking us, what do we know of Jesus? Who is he? What does the Bible say about Jesus? So being university students, we all look at our toes and twiddle our thumbs until one, one girl, a friend of mine said, Jesus is my friend. Yes. The speaker says, and he wrote on the whiteboard the word friend. And then we get the idea what the speaker wants us to do. And, and soon enough, more people were raising hands and or just shouting out where we were. Jesus is uh, a saviour. Jesus is a redeemer. Jesus is our comforter. And so on and so forth. Soon the whiteboard was filled with words depicting what scripture says about Jesus. We felt very pleased, at least I felt very pleased. I was about a two-year-old Christian then to see the whole whiteboard <clears throat> full of words. <clears throat> we don't think we got everything that the Bible says about Jesus, but a full 30, 40 description or names of Jesus. Then, he congratulated us and told us then, well, of all these descriptions of Jesus in the recent weeks or months, how many of these are real to you and that you can give a, an, an example or a sharing why you say Jesus is your friend, for example, looking at the girl who first uh, offered uh, to respond to him. And then the, 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 the room felt silent. And this time there were much, much fewer hands that were raised. And the point of the speaker and the point that I'm trying to share with us this Sunday is that while we may have hit knowledge, scriptural understanding of who Jesus is, 
our master, our savior, our redeemer. And for the purpose of this Sunday, a king. When was the last time that any one of us had an encounter or had a personal experience with our Lord in the sense that He showed us or we appreciated His kingship over our lives? And that's the point of, or the gist of this Sunday, what I'm going to share with you. It still hasn't come on screen. Um, let me try something. We'll turn back to clock to 30 years ago when there were no projections and no slides. Let's begin. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you will help us to focus our minds, eyes, and our hearts on who you are, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we pray that, Lord, as we consider your kingship over our lives, that your spirit will work within us to search us and to try us to the end that, Lord, we would not be found to be merely paying lip service or harboring a hid knowledge or an intellectual understanding that Jesus is king. On the contrary, Lord, we pray that as we leave this place, we may truly experience, acknowledge, and accept Jesus as the King of our lives, and that our lives may bear the fruit supporting your kingship. For in Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. In the scripture passage that was read for us, we see Pilate putting Jesus on trial, posing questions to him. And the key question that Pilate posed to him is this, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responded and answered to him, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Let this be at the back of your minds as I take you through that trial, that conversation between Pilate and Jesus, and let us see how we can glean some takeaways in our learning, our understanding, as well as our application. 
Now, we have to know, we have to remember that Pilate is a governor appointed by the Roman Empire for that particular area in which Jesus and his disciples were. And it fell upon him, his jurisdiction, to try Jesus. His concern is mainly political because if Jesus is a king, a king of the Jews, then Jesus is in fact committing treason. Because in the Roman Empire, there can only be one, well, he's not king, but emperor, and that is Caesar. There should be no other king or emperor besides Caesar. And so, his job as the governor is to speedily, mercilessly put down any challenges to the throne of Caesar. Because if it is left unchecked, he fears that the people, the Jews, would rally around Jesus as their king and cause a turmoil in that district in which he was the governor. So a revolt against the throne of Caesar is the last thing he wished during his tenure as the governor. Now, this may not be um, evident in this trial, but if you look back a couple of chapters in, in John, in chapter 6, what happened in, in, in that passage was Jesus was teaching a huge crowd of people, the 5,000 people, men. There's possibly more, maybe even twice that number if you count the children and the women folk. And after he has taught them, he couldn't send them away because it was late. And the story goes that he had to feed them. And after he had performed the miracle of feeding of the 5,000, in, in John chapter 6, verse 15, let me paraphrase, what happened was that the people tried to get a hold of Jesus. The, the, the version that I have, they tried to seize him and force him to be their king. But Jesus slips away. It is not his time, it is not his intention to be an earthly king. So if you think about this incident where over 5,000 people were fed in a miraculous fashion and they wanted to make him king on the spot, it would not be too far-fetched to make an assumption that word of this or news of what happened on the feeding of the 5,000 has gotten into Pilate's ears. So he's not entirely without grounds to suspect that Jesus might be the king of the Jews. And so he questioned Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus asked, answered, is it what you say or is it what other people say about who I am? So on this Sunday, Christ the King Sunday, 
the Holy Spirit may well try us, put us on trial in our heart of hearts and ask us the question, is Jesus a king? Is Jesus your king? I can make a correlation of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as God's representative or even God's governor. So in the passage that was read for us, it is the Roman governor putting Jesus on trial to ask him if he was king. This Sunday, God's governor in the form of the Holy Spirit may well put all of us on trial and ask us, am I a king? Am I your king? What does it mean to say that Jesus is king? There are many factors and reasons apart from scriptural understanding or our concept of who is a king that can influence or impact our understanding and how we regard Jesus as king or not. It could be a scriptural understanding of the king. It could be the society and the culture in which we live in, or even the type of government that we have that may influence, shape our understanding of who is a king. In Malaysia, we, we have this form of government that's called a constitutional monarchy. How many of us here are not from Penang, not Penang Lang, but you are from a different state that you have a king or a sultan? Let me see your hands. Okay. Penang has no king, right? We have a governor. And in Malaysia, I don't know, how many kings do we have? How many sultans we have? And on top of that, a rotating Yang Di Pertuan Agong. So Malaysia should not be alien to the concept of a king. But the concept of a king in a constitutional monarchy in the government of today in Malaysia is very different from the kingship that Jesus questioned us very different. For those of us who, are, who just put up their hands, how many of you think of your king of Para or Johor every day and ask yourself in your heart, what would the sultan want me to do? You know, yeah, you are laughing and I'm laughing inside. I, I won't go and say other things. I, I may be removed from this pulpit. But that's my point. These other factors of our society, of our governance, can influence how we look at the king. Now, if we say, and if we mean what we say, that Jesus is king, truly mean it and believe it and work it out in our lives, then I truly believe that the kingship of Jesus will shape 
influence and impact the way we live our lives, the way we make decisions, the way we prioritize things in our lives, because we have a king. The Sunday school has been dismissed. I, 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 when, when I became a Christian, I was too old to go to Sunday school. But I remember they have this song, Jesus sits in the, is the king of my heart or something. And then I see this picture of a throne and is it you on the throne or is it Jesus on the throne? When we teach Sunday school. And the same question is posed to us. Who is the king of our lives? Who sits on the throne of our lives? That's one question that we need to grapple with. Secondly, as we read through the passage or the passage that was read for us, Jesus answered or told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were to be of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. He said this twice. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from the world. This is from the English, uh, revised, uh, English Standard Version. God's kingdom, God's plans are certainly very different from earthly kingdoms. They are eternal. They are driven by His love to save us and I would not even say very often, it would probably be each and every time the opposite of earthly kingdom. Although King Jesus was raised on high, he sees those who are low down, who work, he works and walks among the poor, the powerless, the oppressed, the homeless. And he works through us as his church. And as such, we must be like-minded in our understanding of God's kingdom. We cannot be kingdom representatives of Jesus Christ if our understanding of Jesus as king is incorrect. We would misrepresent Jesus. Now, you don't, we, we can't see anything here, but... Um, recently, I, I went through an article about the uh, mayor of a city. It's Salt Lake City in America. I'm looking at this picture now. I'm sorry, I can't show it to you. Um, quite a, a strong, middle-aged man, but hair is still, you know, brown and not yet white, but very healthy-looking. And it, it became a headlines in the local newspapers. Let me read for you the headlines that I'm seeing. He says, Mayor Ben McAdams, that's his name, disguised as a homeless man in Salt Lake City's violent neighborhood for three days and two nights. And here is what he saw. And the newspapers continue to relate what the mayor saw and experienced with his own eyes and his own flesh. Now, we have heard stories of this before when the new pastor comes in dressed as a beggar, you know, and then the church members try to shoo him away and, and he come out and make a servant and everybody cry and feel so bad. You know, we have seen that before. But this is not a Christian. This is a mayor, a secular leader of Salt Lake City. 
And, and allow me to, to, to condense what he experienced as a mayor in disguise, as a homeless vagrant, you know, sleeping in the streets. He says he made friends fairly quickly and he was pretty welcomed by the, the other people that were homeless. It seems misery loves company. <laughs> so, and they were very warm to him. He was surprised. And they told him two things. You must remember, rule number one, never, never take off your shoes. Okay, the mayor said. And rule number two, never, never go to the public toilets at night. Okay. <laughs> it is so important. And, he, and later he realized that if he were to take off his shoes, it would be stolen. And he would be left without shoes and it is very cold. I've been to Salt Lake City earlier this year towards the end of um, winter when the, the, the surrounding hills were beautifully covered with snow and it is so cold and it's already spring. I would hate to go about without my shoes. Thirdly, not so much of a rule, but by his observation, he saw that all his so-called friends were sleeping on the sidewalk on the streets. Now, you need to know that in, in Salt Lake City, the, 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 the council or the city council has set up uh, what, what they call shelters for homeless people. But the homeless were not going into the shelters. Seemingly, they prefer to sleep on the streets exposed to the elements. And he wondered why. So as I said, he was there for three days and two nights. On the first night, he slept in the streets. On the second night, he wondered why. And the only way he could find out why were these people not sleeping in the shelters, in, in, in an enclosed building that was meant for the homeless. So he went in. And he found that the reason was this. Number one, there were a lot of gangs there. There was fighting and there was drugs. And people ended up getting hurt. He, in his testimony, he said he, he dared not sleep that night. He didn't feel safe in the shelter. And then he realized that as he... So this is what he said to the reporters after he came back to his office. He said... The homeless people faced three main challenges. Where to sleep, where to get food, how to spend the day safely. And, and before he took on this charade to become a homeless man for three days, two nights, he said that he had always thought the homeless people were lazy because they didn't try to find gainful employment. But he realized that because he was with them for a mere three days, two nights, that these people had, in all the time that they were there, they were always thinking, where do I sleep tonight? Where do I get food? And how do I spend the day safely? They don't have time to think about getting a job. They can't. So his mindset changed. Why am I telling you this? It made the newspapers, it made the internet, because it is something very unusual. I, I doubt our governor or Datuk Bandar 
ever did this and slept in the streets of Kuala Lumpur or Georgetown and, and all that. The, these people, when they go to town, you'd have police outriders and they'll probably catch all the, the, the beggars and throw them outside so that he, as the mayor, don't see these unsightly people. So this, this piece I'm sharing with you is because of the nature of Jesus' kingship. We read in Philippians, though he was king, he did not count equality of God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself to be born like us in a lonely, lowly manger. And thenceforth, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Are we living and fighting for his kingdom? Or are we living and fighting for our own earthly kingdoms? We can alternatively choose not to fight or fight wrong or best of all, to fight rightly. I say it's a matter of choice because God has given us a choice. Do you know that the scripture tells us each and every one of us are soldiers of, and, and our captain is Jesus? Onward, Christian soldiers. We sing that, right? But when you leave the church, oh, I, I, I'm a non-commissioned soldier. I don't fight. And many of us don't fight. It's our choice. And many of us do fight, but fight for ourselves instead for God's kingdom. And the question Jesus posed on us today in, in Jesus the King Sunday is, will you fight for me? Fight the right kind of fight against injustice, against oppression, and so forth. 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, Paul says this to Timothy, and he, he, it's a confession. I, I love this verse. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, our righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Kept the faith. Thirdly, Jesus' kingship is not like ours. Okay, this thought just came to my mind. Why didn't I tell you this? So if you look at your bulletin, you'll see the points. So you can at least follow in the bulletin. Jesus' kingship is not like our earthly kingship. Jesus says in the passage that was read for us, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I want to read another passage from Philippians, chapter 2, verse 5 to 8. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbly, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We sang together the servant king. That is the kind of kingship Jesus is. No man would easily, willingly, readily lay down his life for another man. And the Bible has some words on that. In the earthly kingdom perspective, soldiers and, and subjects of the kingdom, if he's a good king, people may, may be willing enough to die for their king, to protect the king. For, for those of you who play chess, you know what I mean. Sacrifice the pawn, sacrifice the rook, that kind of thing. But Jesus, being the king of kings, is willing to die for you and I. And he did. It's unthinkable. But such is the love of God. He didn't ask us to die for him, although there may come a time when we have to stand for him. But he died for us so that we can have everlasting life. His kingship is not like us, not like ours. So what does it mean that we follow him? So if Jesus is a king and he's our king and we know his kingdom is not of this world, and his kingship is not like earthly kings, then following him means doing things quite different from following an earthly king, okay? You become who you follow. Let me say that again. You become who you follow. If the leader is ABC, <laughs> then the followers become ABC. Best example, government of Malaysia. You all laugh. You know what I mean. And, and recent times I read about this VIP, uh, this Dato or Datan, whatever his name. Right? Let me see what's his name. Vignes Warren. Make a fool of himself in the VIP lounge in KLIA. You get what I'm trying to say? Those are, have you read this story? Hands up, please. You know what I mean. You know who I am? <laughs> scolded the security guards. And that's the problem with a mindset that is skewed following earthly leaders or earthly kings who throw their weight around or boss their way around thinking that there's a separate set of laws that doesn't apply to them but apply to us. They mistakenly take the authority on their office to be on their persons. A person is given authority because of the position and the office he or she holds. And as a dear Christian brother pointed out, and I always remember his words, whoever that is in a public office or a leadership office should do all, should do all that he or she can to live up to the good name of that office. You are who you follow. So if you follow a wrong example, a flawed 
understanding of who is a king or a leader. I use this interchangeably. So you end up with little Napoleons telling people in their faces, do you know who I am? <laughs> I don't care who you are. I respect you for the office that you hold, but don't misuse that and apply it to your person. And you don't do good you don't do good to the name of the office by acting in that way. Okay, enough of my, I need to vent, okay? So we, we become who we follow. And if we follow Christ as our king, we should day by day become more like him. To end the application, yeah, three applications. So although Jesus is a king and our king, Many of us, all of us maybe, at one time or another, may unknowingly, unconsciously, mistakenly regard him less than a king or otherwise. Ah, Ruth got, got a little bit more. <laughs> First one, he is not really a king. The, word, the emphasis on the word really. He's a king, you know. Uh, number two, He's more of a future king. Emphasis on the word future. Third, he may be a king, but, emphasis on the word but. Let me go through each of them, then we are done. Jesus is not really a king. What do I mean by this? Now, I think all of us readily and more easily accept that Jesus is our saviour. Amen? Jesus is our redeemer, Right? Jesus is our provider. Jesus is our friend. Jesus is our guide, and so on. We, we accept this readily, easily, and without much question, and welcomingly, if I can use the word. Why? Because all these facets or manifestations or the characteristics of God or Jesus being our Savior, our guide, our Redeemer, our provider, our friend, belongs to a category which I, I, I make myself. These are the things that Jesus does for us. He saves us. He redeemed us. He provided for us. He kept us safe. He guide us. You know what I'm trying to say? So, you, you want to do for me? Okay, I accept you. But on the contrary, to accept that Jesus is a king, hey, wait a minute, requires me to do something for him. And that's where we balk. And that's where, why I, I chose this application. Jesus is not really a king. I, I can accept Jesus as my saviour, my guide, but Jesus is a king. Okay, name only. You know who is the real king? There are three people. I, me, myself. To accept Jesus as the king implies that we have to obey him. And because we are unfamiliar with kingdom living, a king tells you to do something, there's no option, no, no choice. No. Let me think about it now. Can I say no? You can't. That's how it is. Before pastor left last Saturday, I, last Sunday, I, I pulled him aside and I asked him a question. How does Christianity view democracy? Immediately, he says, it's not biblical. I didn't have to hear anything else from him. Democracy is not biblical. 
And I think that has influenced our concept and our idea of who is king. So if we, if we live our lives and do pretty much what we want, the way we want it, when we want it, without due consideration to Jesus as the king in our lives, then the conclusion is that Jesus is not really our king. And today is Jesus is King Sunday, and we have to seriously search our hearts and consider this. Secondly, Jesus is more of a future king. So there's this possibility that while we accept Jesus as our king, we may have this notion that, well, it's only applicable when I get to heaven. Here, oh no. He's a king, yes, but only when we go to heaven. You know what I'm trying to say? So he's a king in the future. But we need to realize that Jesus is our king now. And his kingdom is now on earth. We prayed this. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on heaven and on earth. This side of heaven, Jesus is king. Not in the future, now. Thirdly, lastly, Jesus may be king, but that's where the but comes in. So, as I said just now, my conversation with Pastor, that democracy is, is not biblical. God intended the, the nation that he has chosen to be a theocratic nation. Jesus is king, theocratic, not democratic. But we like to demo, so we become a democracy. So we are caught with this having a voice, having a right, having a vote. And many of you have your fingers, still got ink or not? Oh, no more ink already, after all many months. We, we have experienced power in the ballot boxes, power to change the government. And, and, and I'm not saying democracy is a bad thing, don't, don't get me wrong. Huh? But I'm just saying that the biblical concept is theocracy and not democracy. Because democracy... Um, practice among people that are fallen, people that are selfish, people that are godless, will vote for a government that will exclude God. If you have been reading what's happening in the US, you would understand what I mean. God is not allowed in school. No prayers are allowed. In this country, I don't have to say the fact that we have experienced and we have this power as a democratic country to decide is very opposed to that of a theocratic nation. A king whose wish is supposed to be our command. And because of this tainted understanding, it has disturbed, it has interrupted, it has made our obedience, our living out of Jesus' kingship in our lives to be less than desired. And again on this Sunday, we need to re-inspect this, and when we leave this place, make Jesus to be really a king in our lives. Now you can't see, this is my last slide. I wrote, you are our king 
four times. The first line, the emphasis is on you. You are our king. Not anybody else, but you, Jesus, you are our king. The second line, the emphasis is on the second word. You are our king. You are our king. The recognition and the acceptance. The third line, you are our king. We are your people. You are our king. And finally, the fourth line, you are our king. And let this seep in our hearts and minds so that when we live this place, we live, leave, sorry, as his subjects, loyal subjects, to carry out his work on his kingdom upon this earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our king. You are the king of kings and the lord of lords. Father, we ask for your forgiveness if we have paid mere lip service of your kingship in our hearts. We know that in every one of us, we can do much better. We ask that, Lord, you would take charge of the throne in our hearts, that we will allow you to truly be our king, and thus our lives, our churches, and everything that we do would be done for you and in your name and for the advancement of your kingdom. And Lord, we know that you are a different king. You are a king who loves us, who would and in fact did die for us and saved us. And so, Lord, we follow you. And may we become more and more like you and may our lives shine a light, a blazing light of witness on you as our King, to the end that the world may know that you have come to save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.